Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me tonight is Morgana. Hello. And David Perkins, he is a, an author and a researcher on all things strange and wonderful. Good evening. Good evening. Okay, it's nice to finally see you and talk with you. We've been talking online a little bit, and uh, I'm very excited to actually meet you and, and get to talk face-to-face, sort of. I mean, Indeed. nobody else can see it, but... I see you. You look great. <laughs> Thank you. So do you. We, we all look good. So the, the thing that, that I kind of wanted to talk about, the topic I kind of wanted to talk about, but I know we're going to go off-topic... <clears throat> because we will, um, is the idea of the whole panoply of paranormal events and uh, phenomena being somehow related to the idea of our planetary system, our whole planet being an entity itself, being a conscious entity a super entity, and that whole Gaia uh, hypothesis came originally from James Lovelock, although lots of people have have talked about it. But you're one of the people who kind of got the sort of idea early on about it having to do with paranormal phenomena. Would you like to talk about that? Sure, I could talk about that. Uh, well, I... Uh, now, by the way, I loved your show with uh, Vuk Vasoba. Oh, he's that, fun. Yeah, he and I have been uh, communicating back and forth. And uh, he's he's really delightful and very he sharp. Is. And that was a great show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. But, uh, uh, well, yeah, well, I kind of stumbled across Gaia back uh, when it first came out. I think it was 79 or 80. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, our 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 boy John Keel, I was just looking at, at today uh, at the Eighth Tower where he he nailed it in 1975. Basically, uh, Gaia, you know, should be uh, looked at in terms of understanding phenomena. That's 1975. So, um, but um, I kind of came. I, I somehow missed that. I read all of Keel's books back in those days, but that went by me. And it was just like about a couple paragraphs in the middle of that book. And I, I somehow, I, I just let it get by me. But it wasn't time for me to absorb that material. It was the only thing I could figure. And I kind of had to come to it on, on my own, sort of like Book was talking about. It's like, uh, he didn't, he's so new to the field, he really kind of thought he had come up with the idea that Gaia and phenomena could be relatable so uh, when I first started into it, I was really actually working with what I call the evolutionary imperative. And that hadn't really included uh, Gaia at that point. That was right around 1980. And what I was re- really working with at that point was evolutionary psychology and more along uh, the lines of Carl Jung and... Uh, the mythological basis of uh, the phenomena, but what I was really interested in was uh, a more biology-oriented uh, 
view of phenomena, basically. Like, how does this, any of this fit in with our basic needs uh, and survival skills and whatnot as a species? Right. So at that point, Gaia was still floating off in the distance somewhere. I hadn't, hadn't congealed in my thinking about all of it. But boy, once, once I got onto it, it's like, oh my goodness, what have we got here? Uh, so what I was looking at early on was kind of uh, trying to extrapolate Jung, basically, when he was talking about uh, flying saucers being uh, materialized psychisms. And I thought, well, that's kind of a curious concept right there. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so what... So when I ran across something like this, like I would try to feed it back into the evolutionary imperative. It's like, how does this play in to uh, our evolutionary needs, basically, and uh, our direction that we're going as a species? Is this how does this help us? So once once it hit Gaia, then it's like all the sky was the limit, literally <laughs> at that point, and yeah. uh, it's like. So not only are we thinking about, or was I thinking about what you know how any of this benefits us particularly as humans, or as sapiens, uh, so uh, it jumped then to like how does any of this benefit the over, the larger organism that we're theoretically a part of, and I always say theoretically and hypothetically, and I use all those words all the time. Uh, because it's definitely not certain. Yeah. <laughs> and, and mm -hmm. It's not certain. Uh, I was just reading one of Keel's quotes, something like, uh, he was paraphrasing Socrates, it's, uh, something like, the more I learn, the less I understand. So <laughs> you get into that kind of wheel of, of doing things, and you have to qualify everything you say, basically. And uh, But what happened was... Uh, Lovelock put uh, put out the Gaia hypothesis, and he actually came up with it. I think it was 1965. So somehow Keel had tapped into that, you know, and uh, before anything was really published, uh, there was one small paper that had been published at that point that Keel must have had access to, probably through Sanderson. But, yeah. Uh, uh, those two were in cahoots, and but right there it was: Gaia, Lovelock, the whole thing, 1975. So anyway, I, I, I jumped, I made that jump from evolutionary psychology of humans to the more of a planetary uh, psychology of what phenomena would represent in terms of the needs of the overall giant organism and uh, what, what role they would play, not only for humans, but for the whole shebang. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... I had read Lovelock when it came out. Uh, my dad brought the book into the house. Big, this should not surprise Morgana at all because he's a very curious person and he was always bringing interesting books into the house and that's how I found John Keel the first time. So um, I, I would have been uh, 1980, uh, 15 years old, something like that. And so I read that book and was just like, oh, this makes so much sense um, that, you know, that that the planet would evolve 
a, a balanced system to keep life moving and to keep life um, generating, you know, and, and evolving. And, and it, it made so much sense. Part of the reason it made sense is I remember my grandfather, um, my mom's dad, was a farmer. And when I was a really, really little kid, like, you know, five, six, seven, something like that, I used to follow him around the farm when he was doing chores and ask him, like, you know, a thousand questions. And he'd answer them pretty well, and eventually then he'd send me off to help Grandma with whatever it was she was doing because I'd finally made him crazy. But one of the things he was really patient explaining to me was that the, to make a farm successful you had to make a farm like a natural system. And when he said natural system, I was like, what, what <laughs> a five-year-old, I'm a five-year-old grandpa. I don't know what you mean there. And he was like, well, look at, look at how the woods work. Okay. So you know that there's living stuff in the ground and you know that we have air and the reason we have air is because animals breathe out carbon dioxide. And the reason we have oxygen is because carbon dioxide is eaten by the plants. And then they, they breathe out oxygen. And mm -hmm. so then we breathe that in and then we make carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. He said that's what you call a closed system. He said it goes in one, out the other, and then in that right. one. And, then, and it's a circle. He said, that's why I say to you that a farm without animals is only half of a farm. Mm -hmm. He said, all, all places on earth have animals and plants and, and fungus, and they all work together. And he said, and that's what makes a balanced system. And so he, he, cause I, the reason he got into that whole thing, I remember I asked him why he didn't use the fertilizer that came out of bags, why he used manure. Right. Because, you know, you're a five year old, it smells bad. <laughs> so, you know, why not use that clean stuff that comes uh. out of the bags? And, you know, he later explained to me that evening, he was like, you know, the other reason I don't use the stuff that comes out of the bags is I know where that came from because I used to make that stuff that came out of the bags and it's used to make bombs. And after uh -huh. the war, when we didn't have to have so many bombs, mm. they had to figure out what to do with all of that stuff. And they realized that the components of the explosive stuff were the same components that plants eat from their roots out of the soil. And so they had this, <laughs> and they had this great idea that they'd just stick it in the soil and it would make the soil great. And he said, and it works a little, <clears throat> works okay for a little while. He said, but that's not the only thing that's in manure. And he's like, you know, the manure has all kinds of stuff that's alive in it. And that stuff that's in the bags doesn't have anything alive. And he said, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of little organisms that are alive in the manure that make the soil better. And then you have the earthworms in the soil, and they make the soil even better, and they eat parts of the manure. And, you know, so he was explaining all of this to me so that when I got to James Lovelock, I was like, yeah. I was so excited. I was like, oh, I understand. I took it to Grandpa. He read the book. And he was like, that's what I've been saying, you know, ever since. <laughs> 
people started using chemical fertilizers that you shouldn't do that. And you shouldn't. It causes you know, algae blooms. It does all kinds of terrible things. Yeah. You know, which then, you know, Gaia has to somehow correct or not. Right. Yeah. You know. So that's that's part of why I I got the whole Gaia part, but the I didn't I didn't catch the whole um idea of the paranormal part right away. I don't know why, but it, it, I got it one time in the middle of a, of a, uh, um, now see, I said I wasn't losing words. Um, and now suddenly, suddenly COVID jumps up and says, no, you're going to oh. lose this word. Uh, no, I had had a, uh, I was, I was doing mushrooms the first time. <laughs> oh, good. And, um, I was sitting there and and the things that happen to me when I'm doing that I never party I always sit outside and listen to things and observe things and as you know my friends say you go and talk to the universe because you're serious and so that's what I did and um I it came to me that wow you know mm. what if all that you know weird stuff that I experience all the time is really nothing more than Gaia talking to me in symbols that I can understand. Yeah, yeah. And, hey, you know, maybe all of that stuff, you know, is her talking to everybody, sometimes large groups of people, sometimes individual people. And she's trying, it's, it's the way she can communicate with us. And I was like, since I was a pagan by that time, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. You know, mm -hmm, yeah. now, did I run around and tell the world this? No, no, because I'm not a prophet. And because um, you had this so, revelation while you were on drugs and you knew yeah, everybody would be like, oh, well, you were just on drugs, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of that when I was when I was experimenting with entheogens. <laughs> but it does oh. sort of stand the test of time. Yeah. Yes, it does. Well, the, it, yeah, it's a giant leap, basically, between, okay, you, you accept Gaia, you know, hypothesis, which is now Earth system science, that they cleaned it up, yeah. right? They had to take it sounds Gaia. nicer. It yeah, sounds okay. nicer for scientists. Uh, but, and the, it's interesting that uh, people like NASA have, are even referring to it now in terms of, you know, going to other planets and doing whatever we're going to do out there. They suddenly just like incorporated all that Lovelock stuff, which is quite interesting in itself. But it, it's it really is a giant leap uh, to take it from where Lovelock left off to where we're at least I'm trying to take it at this point. It's like okay, so we got all these uh, things that we we pretty much understand. I mean, all the systems that are at work to to maintain this uh, homeostasis they call it that ideal situation for all all life on the planet. The guy is constantly doing uh, compensatory actions, basically using feedback loops. If something gets a little too hot over here, you got to cool this off over there. We need more algae. We need less algae. We need that, you know. It's right. sort of like, a, in a way, that's mechanistic. You know, it's almost, mm -hmm. a, it's almost reductionist and mechanistic, but it's fascinating because it just happens to be the way things work. Yeah. Now, so you get to the point, though, it's like, okay, that's it's all of a very fine-tuned machine of sorts 
that uh, keeps this uh, this all of this in the exact proper uh, proportions. I think one of the one of the statistics was something like the sun had uh, increased during the life period on Earth, which I guess is 3.5 billion years. The sun's intensity has increased somewhere around 24 percent. Keel said 32 percent, but but meanwhile, the conditions on Earth stayed exactly the same. The oxygen content stayed exactly the same. Now, how did how did that happen? Uh, somehow, Gaia figured out. Okay, we want this 20, 21 percent oxygen, whatever, is exactly what we need for all life on Earth to prosper. This is what what it's going to be based on that number, and it varies very little and somehow the earth manages manages to you know keep it exactly in that parameter uh so that that tells you something right there but uh okay so if you it's no giant leap for people to say okay this it's we see understand these these earth system science processes everything even inert matter it's all part of the scenario uh every the rocks everything contributes to this keeping this thing exactly fine-tuned the way it is. But then to make the next leap over into the paranormal is a really big leap. And, and mm-hmm. it's one that, that uh, Lovelock was not willing to make. Uh, I, I was just rereading the uh, piece that uh, Red Pill Junkie wrote about Lovelock and uh, Gaia. And I, I should have said before he put it out something like, uh, he, he had made a statement like Lovelock vehemently denied the mystical aspect of Gaia. And I'm not so sure he really did uh, vehemently deny it. He, he just kind of got, I think he was caught, caught a little off guard, Lovelock was, because once he published uh, Gaia, he didn't realize the blowback he was going to get from the scientific communities, like the neo-paganism, the, you know, all the... Uh, Far, far right Christian type groups. They were saying this is, uh, I don't know, satanic ecology and all this kind of stuff. It's like just bizarre stuff. So he gets that blowback, and then he gets the scientific community, people like Dawkins and Gould and Shermer and uh, that crew of, of skeptical, super skeptical, who said, no, 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 the Gaia can't be an organism. Because it didn't come about through uh, Darwinian processes. It's a unit of one. Uh, so you can't have a unit of one in any kind of process and call it an, ent- a, you know, an entity produced by Darwin uh, uh, processes. So and he got blasted by the scientific community, and then he got blasted by uh, culturally. Oh yeah, and, then, and yeah. then the then the new age kind of happened to uh, come across and said, "Oh, this is just what we've been looking for, isn't this something?" Gaia sentient, yeah. and then Lovelock has to say, "No, no, it's no, it's no, not no, no. sentient. It's, it's not sentient. <laughs> it's and then he said, "In no way is it is it a god surrogate." And I noticed Keel in the eighth tower. He said, "It is. It is God." <laughs> I yeah. thought that was. I thought that was kind of an interesting for him to just kind of blurt out of nowhere. Uh, yes, guy is God. And it's like, well, okay. Uh, so then uh, Lovelock found himself in a, in a bad situation. He was getting blasted from the left, blasted from the right. 
he was trying to push a uh, forward a valid scientific theory, which he had great pride in concocting, and he should, because it was amazing that he put all that together. So he was trying to defend uh, his turf in, in the scientific world. He was basically a tinkerer when you get down to it. He was an old school scientist maverick who did his own thing on his own terms. And uh, he, he was right up there with the big boys, you know, proposing this amazing theory. So he didn't get a whole lot of support from anybody really at that point, except from the New Ager types. And they were supporting him kind of for the wrong reasons, not for the scientific, yeah. just because they liked yeah. the, kind of hurt his the mystical cause aspect more than of it. it really. Yeah, yeah in, a, in a way. So he, he really couldn't. I, I just don't, I think, you know, I've read a lot of uh, Lovelock. You ought to read his autobiography, by the way. It's just a wonderful book. But I, I think he just, was just caught. I think he was secretly delighted, actually. That he had sparked was a major spark of the uh, environmental movement in the whole world. Mm -hmm. That uh, with with Gaia coming out and plus he he was working uh, scientifically at the time on what's putting the hole in the ozone layer and all that kind of stuff. And he was trying to figure out what the atmosphere of Mars was, and uh, it was just ingenious uh, techniques that he was coming up with to. To figure all that stuff out, so he was—he wanted to stay on that path, and here he was getting tugged over to like into the mystic, and he—he he was not naturally a mystic, but I—I I just know that from reading his life story that he would—that would occur to him. He's like, "Well, look what I've done. Hmm, isn't that kind of interesting? I certainly can't embrace that, or it's going—they're just going to wipe it all out." So he had to make a calculated decision. That he's, he's going to have to act like he wants no part of the mystical aspect of it, and he's only science. And uh, if he doesn't do that, he, the whole theory will get blotted out, and it will hurt the Earth yeah. in effect. Mm -hmm. so, so he was like, I've got, talk about a hard call. He, he never says that yeah. anywhere. I just kind of, reading it over and over, it's like, boy, I know he went over all the permutations of this theory and how it would affect society, and what it you know would do if he put it out, or if he didn't put it out, or if it was successful or not successful. He went over every possibility in his mind, and he took, I think, pro the proper course, ultimately. Yeah. But I wouldn't say he was hostile to the mysticism, necessarily. Let's put it that way. He just wasn't hanging out with the mysticism like a friend. Yeah, you know? right. He just couldn't uh, afford to. He, uh, no, there was too, no. There's too much to lose for him personally and possibly for the life of the planet. Yeah. I mean, you talk about some some heavy uh, heavy burden to carry, I guess you'd call it. You know, what do you do in that circumstance? So he figured, yeah. okay, I'm going I'm to stick with the scientific theory, let everybody else do what they're going to do here. And uh, meanwhile, uh, the, the results have been really quite amazing in terms of, his role in the uh, modern environmental movement has been huge. It's not by any of his doing necessarily. He wasn't promoting himself that way. But uh, I think he, uh, when he died, he was probably pretty satisfied with the way that it, it all played out. And uh, in recent times, he's kind of bounced back and forth between uh, uh, 
oh, we're doomed, or oh, well, we got a little more time than we thought. Oh no, we're doomed. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is just if this is just age at play or what's going on there. Uh, and some of my science scientific friends, scientists, they're uh, still really down on them for uh, advocating for nuclear power to come in to save the day in terms of climate change. And they just said, you know, Lovelock's old and doddering and he's lost his marbles. Anybody knows that that's not going to work. But if you read Lovelock, he makes a fairly convincing case that we don't have time for all this other kind of stuff. Uh, you know, the way that things are going with climate change, we really, a nuclear is about the only possibility that we can deal with what we got to deal with in the time frame that we have. And I can't convince the scientists of that, and they can't totally convince me that nukes are out of the question. So yeah. that's where we ended up on that. But anyway, that's sort of a, a sidebar in terms of uh, the mystical part. But Well, except um, particularly yeah. back in Keel's day, the message from the Space Brothers all the time was you're going to destroy yourselves right. with nuclear technology and weapons and your right. environment is being destroyed. And so I think that those two issues go hand in hand, both in the scientific community yeah. is, is this a solution to our environmental disaster that we're causing and in the mystical community? Because, you know, Lovelock did help spark the huge environmentalism movement, thank God. <laughs> Because I think we would be a lot no. more screwed today than if he hadn't helped inspire oh, yeah. that. But, yeah, you yeah. know, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl really scarred people. Like, the, I think yeah. that really, really just scared everybody. And nuclear technology has really been put on the wayside because you've got this disaster image of what can well, go and wrong Fukushima and Fukushima too. and uh, yeah. yeah, that one bothers me a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, but just to, what, what you're saying, Morgana, uh, and that I was looking up the eighth tower uh, reference and I noticed that after Keel does say, you know, vouches for Lovelock and Gaia hypothesis, he goes off on a pretty big rant about environmental mm -hmm. destruction that the humans are creating. He does. For, for 1975, that was pretty he strong. He really does. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they, I, I, I have to tell this little uh, story. I don't, I don't think I've ever mentioned it to anybody, but uh, it, it somewhat relates to how Gaia gets used in odd ways. Uh, this was after the Exxon Valdez crack up in Alaska when they spilled all the oil. I can't remember what year that was right off the top of my head, but uh, it was after the Gaia theory came out. So, um, so they uh, Exxon ran a full-page ad, basically, and uh, it was either Time or Newsweek. It was one of the two. I'm not sure which one. But the, the gist of it was, uh, all right, people, don't worry about all this oil that was spilled because now we have a promising new theory in the works that explains how Gaia, the Earth, will absorb all this, and that Gaia has its mechanisms to take care of this, 
So everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it because Gaia is going to take care of it. And I thought that was the most hypocritical ad I have ever seen in my that life. That is pretty awful. I seem to recall that ad. It was in 1989. It was. Yes, I was thinking. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was pregnant with Morgana. And I think I read that and just was like, what kind of nonsense is this? <laughs> really? It was just so over I, the I, top. I, could. I was like. How old is is Lovelock now? You know, he he probably can't just appear in this ad exec's you know office and whomp him on the head, but the dude would deserve it. (laughs) And my, I remember my dad reading it and going, "What kind of is this?" You know, my dad had very uh, interesting phrases. I've got, I did go back and try to find the ad, and I, I just haven't. Looked that hard, but I haven't found it either. But I know I saw it. I know exactly what it said. And uh, I thought, this is just unbelievable. Especially since uh, Exxon in particular, I guess it was, uh, well, the big oil back in the mid-70s, uh, was uh, they knew darn well what they were doing to the atmosphere. They did. And they proceeded yeah, they did. to do it anyway. They knew exactly what they were doing. There were studies said, from hey, the 1830s? I believe in where they yeah, they I had saw, saw, knew they yeah, already I, knew that pollution was bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw yeah. that it was some guy. I can't remember this guy's name, but it was a little newspaper clipping and made the rounds. I think it was more, um, further on into the late 1800s, as I recall, maybe 1870. Uh, You're you know, probably 80, right. I think it was after industrial revolution was fully underway i believe but he totally nailed it then he said this is what's going to happen with it as a result of pollution and uh i i checked out the thing because i thought this is too good to be true so i did a real facts check on it and it was indeed real that he had nailed it that far back so the uh, executives at the big oil companies in the 70s knew darn well what they were doing and they proceeded mm-hmm. to do it anyway and they put us in this mess yep I don't think we should ever let them off the hook. No, they're not off the hook for me ever. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, I rem- I remember all that stuff in the nineteen you know seventies too. I was I was a weird little kid who read Time magazine, and yeah. uh, then would you know bring up these topics at the dinner table, and my grandfather would look at my mother and go, "Where'd she get that?" And she's like, "Oh, Time magazine." And, what? <laughs> See, no, she reads that stuff. Yeah. And uh yeah, he he said that it it only takes someone someone with common sense to realize that you know, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide were going to trap warm air because that's yeah. what they do. He said it's it's not so if you're burning stuff that puts that into the atmosphere, well, then it's going to do things to warm up the planet, and you can't. It's it's again, it's that whole cyclical thing. You have something putting out something, and you don't have something eating it essentially, and transforming it into something else. So it's going to hang around. Yeah. You know, because well, I being a, you know, eight, nine, ten year old kid, I'm like, well, what about trees eating the, the carbon dioxide? And he's like, well, we got to plant a lot of trees now, don't we? And what's happening? Right. <laughs> what's happening? Lots of people are cutting down lots of trees. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah. 
Well, that well, sucks. We're, we, we really created a mess, but I, I kind of liked Keel's rant back in 1975 because it, it's pretty much right on the money when he he nailed it. It was kind of out of character for him, but he really went off on it. He did. And he's, he, he's, he, knew, he, could, he knew a lot. I mean, he, he must have had great sources. But, I mean, he gets a bad rap for being, uh, I, don't, I don't know, less than thorough researcher sometimes. People say, oh, you know, people like Jerry Clark say, oh, his writing is immensely entertaining, but he doesn't really do his homework and he gets stuff wrong and he doesn't check it out. And he's, whereas Valet has a, you know, source for all his uh, footnote for this, a footnote for that, footnote. Keel just rams right on through. It's like, hey, take it or leave it. If you don't believe me, go look it up yourself. <laughs> yeah. I would love it if he'd had at least indexes, but... <laughs> yeah, I know, sometimes. But I do recognize some of his sources still, so, you know. Yeah. I, 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 I disagree with, with Jerry Clark on that. I, I think that... He he's given a lot of a bad rap for not being a good researcher, but he did work for the Encyclopedia Britannica um, yeah, well, as a science writer. He did a lot right. of the the entries yeah, yeah. in the sciences. And considering he never went to college, he was extremely well read. And he was a reporter, not a. He was a reporter, not an academic. And that doesn't mean he was bad at finding knowledge. Like, right, right. reporters are just as good at researching as academics, but they do it in a different way. It doesn't mean they're bad mm -hmm. at research. Yeah, it was yeah. very entertaining, I gotta say that. It was, uh, I think it was probably just what the public needed at that point. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, it, they, it was easy to access, and I think it brought a lot of people into, you know, viewing the paranormal in a different way than, say, ballet did. They, they're both valid, you know, approaches, yes. obviously, and they kind of fit together in an odd way. Uh, the, the overly analytical and then the, you know, more emotional uh, technique, I guess, of Keel. And, you know, writing for magazines like Argosy and stuff like that, and you can stretch things a little bit. You want to be entertaining. I mean, I come on some uh, some of these podcast-type shows, and the host will say, give me a little lecture at the beginning. It's like, whatever you do, be entertaining. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, I think I'm always entertaining. <laughs> but apparently not. <laughs> Uh, I don't lecture people. People want to be scared. They want to. Be, <laughs> they want to be. In, they want to be scared. They want to be entertained. They want to jump out of their boots and they want something really scary. And this was me. They wanted me to talk about cattle mutilations and really scare the hell out of people. I said, "Well, well at this point, they're not really all that scary to me." You yeah. Know? And that's a thing you can talk about because you actually have. An idea of fitting that in with the idea of Gaian uh, paranormal phenomena as a communication. And I think that's an interesting idea that you have about yeah, cattle mutilation, yeah. how that little puzzle piece fits in there. Well, I think it's, it's a crucial piece of the puzzle, Barbara. I really do. And I keep saying this is my little mantra, you know, it's... Uh, 
cattle mutilations are the key to understanding the paranormal. The paranormal is the key to understanding consciousness. Consciousness is the key to understanding everything, basically. So in other words, we got this one phenomena, which even in my own mind, it's still something about it doesn't quite fit in terms of a, uh, a trickster type approach of looking at it. Because the cattle mutilations are so methodical. Yeah. And I just can't think of any other paranormal phenomenon uh, that is that methodical. Uh, just time after time after time, hundreds, thousands of times. And it's very, very similar from case to case to case to case. Whereas if you get something like cryptids or, you know, big Bigfoot type uh, creatures, they're slightly different. They're have a different bill. They do different things. They act in different ways. There's, yeah, they're just, uh, they're more unpredictable. Whereas the mutilations are just so rote. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not quite sure who's getting the message from them besides a handful of people. So, um, other, it does scare the hell out of a lot of ranchers and their families. And if you're, if you're just looking at a trickster type mechanism, which is, what I am basically saying about uh, the, the, the paranormal and why it's uh, necessary, yeah, from a Gaian point of view, is that it's uh, it turns the table every once in a while and creates novelty in the society and uh, a robust uh, change and allows things to resettle. It, it, that's a healthy healthy thing basically it's a survival strategy of sorts uh that you can't let your population stagnate uh, or it's 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 not good from a survival strategy point of view so in terms of human society maybe in terms of Gaia itself uh, every once in a while you got to turn the apple cart over and let things reconfigure so that's paranormal i think serves that role for humans in their own individual lives and collectively. Uh, so possibly uh, does the same for Gaia. The, the entire uh, paranormal realm might be you know, doing that for, from a Gaian point of view. It's like, okay, let's just really shake it up. So, But the thing is, it's really hard to visualize, I suppose, or even understand what a Gaian mind might do or look like or be capable of or how far in advance can it think and plan? And uh, uh, if you look at the natural world, you see that things think and plan way ahead mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, yeah. So it wouldn't be that out of character for a, a larger organism to have a, have a survival strategy, uh, which would, might involve humans, which I suspect it does. Uh, Vuk and I have kicked this one around about uh, Gaia using humans basically as a vector to procreate. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, uh, if you provide, if the paranormal provides all the memes, I'm, I'm calling them, uh, of space flight, which we are up to our ears with for the last hundred years in science fiction and movies and phenomena. Uh, suddenly then it's like it seems inevitable that we're going to be a space-faring civilization, which would suit Gaia just fine if it was trying to procreate and get us to like haul all this DNA all over the 
known universe and spread Gaia's uh, spawn, whatever. Or maybe we're the actual result of somebody else's Gaia. I don't know. I mean, you really get into yeah. You know, <laughs> you it's really a neat get, thought. Well, and I kind of yeah. it makes me think of spaceships as like uh, milkweed pods. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they go out into space and then uh, yeah. pop open over a a new uh, planet, right. and all the little seeds fall down, and Gaia has reproduced. Well, Gaia could actually be the result of somebody else's, some other Gaia. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. why people people like Dawkins when they say, "Well, Gaia is only one of a kind, so how can it be come about by uh, Darwinian evolution?" How do we know that it's one of a kind? How do we know that that actually didn't happen somewhere along the line? That yeah. Gaia yeah. prevailed. A Gaian planet prevailed over another kind of Gaian planet, and uh, uh, who knows what goes on there? And I mean, it's, it turns into science fiction at that point because we we run into this wall. It's like how far can human comprehension really take yeah. us? And right now, I feel like. Something like the cattle mutilations, for instance, in my own life, it's it's really pushed me to the limit of human comprehension. It's I just cannot break through to the next level. It is just so incomprehensible, and I keep trying and trying and trying, forty some years, but that's maybe what it's supposed to be doing, not only in me but in in the general population, and uh, uh, it's it's supposed to be provoking us. I, I had, uh, the, my friend Smiles Lewis actually had an interesting take on it. Uh, he was basically saying that, well, I guess I'd back up one step. I, I was looking in, uh, trying to figure out why people like to go to horror movies and be scared, witless. <laughs> and somebody, some psychologist was saying, well, it's, you know, it's our way of uh, sharpening our fight or flight responses, and it's so because we don't get that in a normal life. We don't have to worry about a saber-toothed tiger jumping out of the tree on us. So we, if we want to keep all those those senses sharpened, we have to find some sort of artificial way to do it. So the, what we have found is that you go to a horror movie and you you know get really really scared and you see all these circumstances where people are threatened and how they deal with it, and uh, so it keeps all those senses sharpened from a survival point of view for humans. So he smiles was basically saying, well, okay, uh, so say we're going to be a spacefaring civilization, we're going to need all of that all of those uh, survival skills. Mm -hmm. And we're going to need to ha have gone through either in dreams or in fiction or movies or whatever. We've got to ha have to have played out some of those scenarios in our minds in advance. So when we do come across something extremely weird out there, some other kind of life form, somebody doing something that we never even could imagine and we come across it and we got to deal with it, this is getting into Star Trek. I was about to right? say that we've had the template of Star Trek. We're like, okay, we know right. what to do. That's that's it. Exactly. That's it. So I was yeah. thinking about alien yes. myself. I thought alien too. I was thinking about I, half my brain was like and, alien, and, yeah. and the other right. half of my brain was like, no more Ghana Star Trek. Let's try and be hopeful. Well, mm, no, not mom. Well, <laughs> it's uh, 
Well, I think it makes a certain amount of sense if you accept the idea that, like Terence McKinnis said, the great goal of humanity is to become a space-faring civilization. And that uh, I, I resonate with that. I just think it's inevitable. And uh, so to do that, we have to keep all these skills sharpened somehow, all kinds of analytical skills and survival-related skills that go all the way back to the plains of the Serengeti or something, that, that we've got to keep all of that, what makes us uh, who we are. It reminds me, I, I always got a big kick out of uh, the original Star Trek when Captain Kirk was having a fist fight with aliens on the bridge of the Enterprise, right? It's yeah. like a, a Western saloon. And... Uh, yeah. It's like, I'm going like, ah, oh, that's our humans. Yeah, that a boy. You punch him in the yep. face. <laughs> you know, like, Sometimes like, a punch in the face just, is what's needed, though, you know? Right. And the Vulcans but are I, standing there going, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> oh really? y'all. <laughs> Come on, y'all. But uh, We used just, to do that. <laughs> right. But there's, there's that particular quality of humans is could be very useful. I, uh a certain amount of aggressiveness, uh, ability to deal with aggression, and not being a total stranger to that realm, and to be extremely resourceful uh, in, in terms of survival techniques, and not be really too baffled by anything. So, uh, like you say, Star Trek was really the template for that in, yeah. in so many mm-hmm. ways. I also think. And so, you know, oh, I'm sorry. If, if you're tuning our, I know I'm just saying you. You know we're. We need to keep some of those aspects of our sapiens selves, basically. Yeah. And I also think another aspect that without mysticism, without the mystic half of Gaia or really in general, I think a survival function for the planet and for us is to continue to spike our imaginations because without imagination we can't dream about yes. the stars without imagination yes, yes. we can't come up with the new survival techniques without imagination we don't tell stories which is how we pass knowledge on you know and i think the paranormal is a key component to humans imaginal sense yes indeed Oh, no, you're right on the money with that. That was something I was going to get into later. Well, uh, yeah, not a whole lot of attention is paid to imagination in any of these scenarios that we typically deal with as researchers. Uh, what is interesting to me is uh, how many of the researcher friends that I have are actually artists of one type or another. Uh I was at some conference, I remember looking around the room, there were like 20 people in the room, and I realized every single person in that room, every researcher, was either a musician, a painter, a sculptor, a poet, something or other that involved the imagination. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's interesting that this particular phenomena of paranormal type stuff attracts people like that, that are, you know, highly imaginative. And plus, the imagination uh, is is so important, I think, in shaping what we claim to see mm-hmm. uh, as uh, as paranormal phenomena. That it's it goes through these 
layers of, uh, I don't know what, what you would call it, but it, as it gets shaped, it gets shaped from our deep in our collective unconscious, and then it moves up to more recent cultural manifestations like uh, books and all the science fiction that we've developed over the last hundred years or so, and then into the movies, and now it's really, really gone way crazy. It's just it's anything you can imagine, it's just out there, and people are coming up with it. So, but uh, the imagination is so key, and and that brings us then back to the collective unconscious, and what goes on there, and what uh, how I I keep saying to people like, well, Gaia has the keys basically to each of our individual consciousness, and to our collective unconscious as a species. I mean, it's a straight link. Mm -hmm. Uh, If Gaia wants to influence us or use us for any purpose uh, that it has, uh, that it's it's got us. Yeah, you know, it's for whatever that is, and and uh, I think maybe it's sort of like a mother doesn't want to give the children uh, too much guidance. They want the children to learn through their own experience Mm -hmm. and. uh, and and also another thing about Gaia is Gaia is pretty unemotional mm-hmm. uh, when it com- when it comes to uh, well I'm just thinking of this this one incident where the, we've got these uh, Cooper's hawks that made a nest out in the big elm tree behind the house and I watch them with the binoculars and uh, they the mother and the father and they have the babies and there are three of the babies and. One of the babies is just not quite as robust as the other two. And just one day I'm watching the mother goes over and grabs the weakling and just heaves it out of the nest to its death. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah. whoa, should I go save it or not? And I said, no, just leave it. Don't You don't do anything here, you know. And, yeah, uh, she had so, a reason for that. So humans, uh, we don't, you know, we're too ethical or whatever, uh, moral to... You know, extinguish uh, life because it's not up to our standard or whatever. We're, I mean, you get into eugenics and some tricky territory there. But uh, so we're not about to go just obliterating people because we don't think that they're genetically appropriate or we, the herd can't handle them or whatever. We try to bring everybody along. I really do think we, for the most part, do that. But Gaius, like, yeah, you're expendable. No, you're dragging the whole thing down. You got to go. Yeah. Yeah, so. I was watching a uh, my younger child, Fox. I think they were, I want to say eight or nine, and we were watching one of those nature shows. Those are dangerous, you know. Sometimes they're sweet and wonderful, and then other times terrible things happen. <laughs> um, I never have really sheltered my kids from that, be- probably because my father thought it was appropriate for me to watch um, uh, stuff like The World at War, which was the BBC documentary that came out in the 70s that had, you know, Mm. just all this footage from the camps during the war. And so I grew up with that. And I grew up with seeing, you know, bombings that were filmed in Europe and everything and started having nightmares about being bombed. And, you know, my mom was like, stop letting her watch that. (laughs) But... So yeah. I I don't coddle my kids too much, but there was this one w- thing we were watching. It was set in the Arctic, 
and we were watching the the snowy owls, beautiful owls. She had three babies. As soon as you started talking about the Cooper Socks with the three babies, I'm like, one of them's going to go. <laughs> I know this. <laughs> you know I know it. this. One of them is going to go. And so we had this one owl baby that was just kind of not doing well, and they couldn't get enough food for all of them, and that one could never, like, fight off its siblings to get the food, and it was just dwindling, you know. So I'm looking at my kid, seeing how this is going over right? Yeah, right I'm like oh this is this is not gonna go well and i was like you know maybe we should watch something else and and they were like no 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 i, I want to see what happens so we saw what happened not only did the owl die but the mother started ripping it apart and feeding oh. it to the other babies yeah okay. which luckily you didn't have to see that because there's plenty of food in your backyard that doesn't involve that baby. <laughs> yeah. But we are in the Arctic in this story, and I so I just kind of looked over to see, you know, if I'm gonna deal with with sobbing. And the kid kind of was frowning. Yeah. And said, Mom, I understand why they're eating the baby. <laughs> And I said, why are they eating the baby? Well, there's not a lot of food in the snow. And I said, yes, that's, that's true. Yeah. I don't blame them, but it's still really sad. And I said, yeah, it is still really sad. And, and she's, then he said, do you think the mommy is upset at all? And I said, well, you know, I don't know how, how emotional owls are, right? You know, I, I don't know. And she's like, well, he was like, well, you know, I wouldn't eat my baby. Oh, I, and I looked at him. i like, well, that's good. <laughs> that's, that's a good choice. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> but I guess if we were in the Arctic, <laughs> I was like, right. you know, there's this movie, kid, where this plane crashes in the mountains and, <laughs> and yeah. it's snowy and there's a, a, a team of soccer players on that. Yeah. And the kid said, did they eat people? I went, they, did, right. they did after they were dead. They were already dead. They didn't kill anybody. They didn't kill each other. Right. But it took them a long time to get to that point. I said, but owls apparently don't have to get to that point. I said, but people do. But people will get to that point. But they will get to that point. And then the kid said, I don't blame them. And I said, good. Because a lot of people were horrified and thought, well, they would never do that, except I think that our will to survive is as strong as any other animal's will to survive. We just also have all of this intellect and emotional stuff up in our brains that right. that get in the way and know? that's good so we can't be like that out for mommy. civilization good it's good that that gets in the way yeah, a lot yeah. of the time but yeah i don't want my neighbors having their kid die and then you know feeding them to the other kids that's not cool no, no that's, that's way not cool, not cool. <laughs> but, well but you know he he they dealt with it pretty well that you know told yeah. his dad and Zach was like, what are you teaching this kid? I'm like, 
<laughs> Sometimes you have to eat babies. That's what I'm teaching the kid. <laughs> well, well, you no, know, we do not. We do not eat babies. <laughs> With this, the age of uh, the pandemic that we're in for the last couple of years, I've seen several people online basically saying, "Oh, this is Gaia's way of, uh, you know, uh, gleaning, pruning the herd, or whatever you call it." Uh, to get the the lesser, the older, the weaker out of the gene pool, basically. But on the other side of that coin, if you look at what's really happened in my lifetime, I was astounded by this. Uh, the number of people on Earth has tripled mm-hmm. in my lifetime. Yes. Tripled. And it's gone from roughly 3 billion to roughly 9 billion just in my lifetime. So it's like, well... Why does, why does guy need all these people? And it's really going to strain the resources at this rate. And if you buy into the idea that we're on the verge of becoming a space-faring civilization, you're going to need a lot of trial and errors going every which way yep. to you know, make, it, make it happen. And have enough love yeah. on Earth to continue right. Right. the ecosystem. Yeah. So, but uh, if you look at the qualities of life, well, that's what Einstein always said. If anything that you wonder about, look deeply into nature and you will find the answer, basically. But so in doing that, you think about life on Earth and it's like every square inch has got something going on. I mean, all the way mm-hmm. from, the vol- from the volcanic vents under the ocean that's just scalding hot. There are things that live there, no problem. Yeah. The outer regions of the troposphere, we got little things floating around. They're out there living. Tardigrades. Yeah, the, our, our friends, the tardigrades. And uh, the, we're on the moon right now. Who knows what they're doing up there? Probably They're going to get bigger and cooler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're going to be. The Maybe they'll develop there, language. I don't know. They'll be cool. They, they, they could. They very well could. Uh, so anyway, we've got what Gaia does is like it fills up every possible niche with some kind of life. Life will will find a way to function yes. there, and it's truly phenomenal. The differences, you know, from going from absolute zero to you know boiling, that it still doesn't make a dent. It you know, life will find a way to to do do what it needs to do. To do its thing, yeah, to, yeah, and you know, it's it's also when people say, you know, we need to save Gaia. Gaia's gonna be fine. Gaia's good. She's she's she. The yeah. big thing is going to do okay. It's us that are gonna be a problem, <laughs> and we're we need to save right. ourselves, and we need to re- recognize that that's what we're saying. Because if the ecology crashes, if the environment crashes, and if we have another great which extinction we're starting, event, which looks like we're gonna have, um more life will come it will be different yeah. it will, we probably won't be there to see it maybe or maybe well, we will some of us we're awfully it, adaptive and stubborn yeah <laughs> very stubborn yeah yeah <laughs> well it seems like Gaia is kind of gearing up for something i mean to allow the population to triple it's like uh then in the middle of that, though, you've got a, another odd thing, which is the, the big economies of the world are, claim that they need more people. Mm-hmm. So you got people like uh, countries like Russia offering money for 
people to I have babies, you know, and giving them giving them the weekend off with free vodka to procreate or something. We need more people. We need more people. It's like we need more consumers. We need uh, yeah. There's a bit of that going on here, and mm-hmm. that kind of segues into the the uh, right to life uh, and right to choose debate in some ways when you think about it. It's yeah. like I think in the United States somewhat uh, there's a belief system at work there that thinks we need more people, we need more consumers because mm-hmm. uh, we're only a measly 300 million people and the Chinese have got 2 billion over there and uh, so yeah, we they, need more people. They, they tried you know, cutting their population down with the one child right. policy which right. Americans freaked out about freaked I think that, out haven't they loosened that yes. up in just in recent they times have. Ch- they have recently it's, but it's like they, they kept need, it for a long time they need more than 2 billion people okay well whatever maybe that's why they need Taiwan or something but uh, uh, so you got geopolitics that figure in and uh, guy I, I mean we get, can't read the mind of Gaia, but we should be able to because we're part of yeah. it, theoretically. Yeah. Uh, so if you can find those the right channels, uh, you can sort of see where, put yourself in the place of a, a super organism, if that's possible, through imagination it is possible, then what would it do in this circumstance? And what is it aiming to do? What does it need to do? What is the goal here? And then, it, then you start running up against some serious... Theological and cosmological issues. It's like, okay, what are we supposed to do? Go out there and colonize the whole universe? Uh, Is that what we're trying to do? Then you get, okay, well, the whole universe is alive. This is the other, your animism Mm -hmm. and monism. And uh, so, okay, everything out there is alive. Even the sun's alive. Other planets are alive. And, uh, so they are a form of consciousness in themselves. It's like, well, okay. Uh, so then you go like, uh, well, where did this all come from in the first place? <laughs> and so then you're into some theological ground. It's like, well, why does this even exist at all? Why is this reality uh, happening? Why are we part of this? What's our role supposed to be? Uh, are we just uh, like those dandelion you know, little flybys, or are we just poofing along there? Or is there some goal? And some some of the physicists now are, are batting around this idea. It's like, well, the universe won't be complete until it knows itself, until it's totally self-aware. It's like, wow. I love that. Oh, wow. You know, the Hindus came up with that, like, yeah. I don't know, 4,000 years ago. <laughs> right. I uh, love when physicists like, oh, well, the universe needs to know itself. I'm like, well... There's this thing <laughs> that yeah. the Hindus came up with that says the exact same thing. Well, when right. did they come up with that? Well, about four thousand years ago. Right. So there you go. So it's a uh, one thing that does strike me in terms of the modern cosmology is just the, the age of the universe uh, at roughly thirteen point five billion years, which to me is a really short period of time. This would factor into thinking about it, the probability of life on other planets and so on. And uh, to me, well, it hit me when I was talking to some geologists who were poking around up in my place in Colorado. 
And they said, oh, this is a really interesting outcropping over here. This is like a, uh, a bill. What? No, it was like three billion years old. It was some sort of outcropping. The Earth is theoretically 4.5 billion years. So this was something they were really excited about. It was a three billion year old outcropping. And I'm going like, that's like one third or one quarter of the age of the entire universe in my backyard, <laughs> right? That's not really a long time. And that's uh, for all these things to come about. And uh, so to me, that seems like a really short time. But of course, now that they've got the new web uh, telescope up, they're saying, oh, well, we're re revising our number of galaxies into the, tri <laughs> into the trillions. Yeah. And now, it's now they're vast. talking. That makes me so happy. About, now they're talking about whole other universes. It's like, wait a minute, what about this universe? I was about to say uh, maybe our universe is just the baby. Yeah, it's 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 the best universe. It's, it's the best. It's the little one. It's we'll the, kick it's, any other universes ass <laughs> if we have to. <laughs> We would too if like humans got to go <laughs> to like probably, a universal conference or something. We would totally be right. like, "You're the best," and they'd be like, "You are some pink monkeys. <laughs> like, you're some hairless weird monkeys who are belligerent." Yeah, we'd be like, "We brought pizza well, and beer, though." So right. I guess you can stay. <laughs> It could come down to something that silly. I mean, it's just, you never quite know. <laughs> but uh, it's endlessly fascinating. And it keeps me going all the time because I, I just, when I discover something new, it's just the most exciting yeah. thing when I put two and two together. Sometimes it takes me years. And it's so obvious. It's like, how could I not realize that five years ago? I, I didn't. You know, and I, I work on yeah. it all the time, but I went right by me over and over and over until I went, oh, wow. So you're back to Socrates again. It's like the more you learn, the less you understand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. so when you, if you're really, really learned, then you really don't understand anything. And <laughs> so I, maybe I'm approaching that point. I don't know. I feel like I don't know much, but, uh, and I look at the, my library of all those hundreds, thousands of books that I, you know, need to keep working with. It's like, what is this going to get me in the end? Uh, mm. Well, what it's gotten me so far is just like a really fun and exciting life that's yeah. uh, very fulfilling and uh, it keeps me getting up every day and eager to get back to work. And it's like, I want to know this. I want to know that. I I mean, just to, I, every day, the internet is so great in some ways. I, yesterday, I was just scrolling along. It's like, okay, Nobel physicist has figured out a way to uh, negate radioactivity, basically, with the pulse lasers. In other words, he said, I could you know, deactivate all this uh, radioactive material in 30 minutes with my pulse lasers. Like, well, what? get at it, dude. <laughs> yeah, right. You better get busy. Go to Fukushima and fix that shit, man. Well, just just think about if that happened to be true. Then Lovelock was right. Right. Then, <laughs> and then Lovelock has taken a bunch of grief now for being uh, a transhumanist, basically. People are saying, well, he's trying to peddle transhumanism, basically the idea being that we're going to merge with machines. And he, he was coming up with some pretty out there stuff, Lovelock was. 
that whatever is going to is going to happen in the next phase of our evolution is going to involve these machines that are 10,000 times more powerful than our human brains and that we're going to have to we're going to be subsumed into them basically instead of the other way it's around it's entirely possible it's like, well, we're already playing with yeah, very like, powerful algorithms that manage to shift yeah. how we think yeah yeah oh it's it's definitely happening right now as we speak i mean so many ways and now we've got autonomous drones with algorithms that go up there and uh, figure out who to blow up yeah you know, i don't which, like that which you way know why party? i don't like that i don't like that because the dude who made it up did not see the terminator oh right <laughs> right see these, the, I want to just go to all of these scientists and make them sit down and watch all of the movies I've watched and read all the books I've read and go, be more careful now. Yeah, You're making cool stuff. It's cool. But can we not do the shooting everything part? Right. That part is not the cool stuff. I know well, that people want lots of shooting things, but... You know, do things yeah. be like the dude I was with the radio, to say exactly. radioactive Figure stuff. out how to negate radiation. That's helpful. <laughs> well, I just think. I mean, that he's my new superhero. Totally. Uh, talk about a game changer. But every day, I swear, virtually every day, there's something that pops up out of my feet. It's like, what? You got to be kidding! Why is everybody going completely nuts over this? And it, we're just plodding along like, oh, what are we going to do about climate change? I don't know. It's so bad. Everything's there's burning. Lots of, lots of people working on it. So so there's so yeah. something's going to break through and it may be Gaia-inspired. or, I mean, at this point, I'm not sure what uh, any idea that I ever have isn't somehow Gaia-inspired, right? Yeah. Well, uh, if, if we are it, part of a or, or, in, or informed by it, mm -hmm. let's say. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a really a different puts humans in a whole different place in the hierarchy of being. Basically, you know, we are an apex species, and I think, I basically think that we've been pampered along as a species for the purposes of Gaia, to procreate yeah. and to have its own survival strategy, and then there, then there's a whole realm of survival strategies. Some of them are conscious, some of them are unconscious. Mm -hmm. So that's where it gets works back into the cattle mutilations. It's like, uh, okay, unconsciously we know that the cattle are our greatest enemy in some ways right now. That goes back to Lovelock's famous saying: the three greatest uh, threats to Gaia are the three C's, which are cows, cars, and uh, chainsaws. I noticed yeah. lately he's he's changed that slightly. He changed it from cars to combustion. Yeah. So it's still, it's still the three C's, but cows being the number one thing, that's the greatest threat to Gaia. If you think about that, it's like, wow. And they're getting mutilated. How weird. Yeah. Why would that happen? Maybe quit putting yeah. the rainforest like, to turn into grazing land. Yeah. Just, uh, just about every aspect of the cattle industry is incredibly... Uh, destructive to what's going on right now with climate change and the collapse of the ecosphere all the way down the line. So what I have noticed uh, is that I, I often wonder, it's like, well, who's paying attention? How does it sway public opinion in any way about anything? The, the mutilations basically it makes people fearful a lot, but uh, 
so I, I what I do is I read I go uh, go on online and go to these local newspapers where they're having mutilations in these remote areas and I read the comments to you know the articles that are published and boy you can learn a lot that way what the locals are saying about it and I noticed some shift fairly recently this was in Georgia actually a place that has very few mutilations they had a I don't know, 20 or so, maybe five years ago. And uh, this one little area, and I went, what is about this? Uh, what's going on here? And I started reading it, and the these are rural Georgia people, uh, ranchers and farmers, and they're saying stuff like, well, we shouldn't be eating beef. It's really bad for the environment, and it's really bad for our health, and it's bad, you know, on and on and on. It's like, what is, you know, is this a college town or what? <laughs> no, no, these are. These are just the ranchers and farmers. That, and the that is interesting. And the locals are suddenly have turned green or something. I don't know what. Maybe it's just in that particular instance. But, but that's what they drew from it about the cows getting mutilated. They thought that uh, it was a sign that they shouldn't be eating meat or they shouldn't be raising cows. And uh, the other side of that coin, though, is uh, the most recent mutilations have been in Oregon. And... Uh, that drew national attention with NPR a couple of years ago. It became a national news story, and then everybody's kind of taken off with it again, uh, including Tucker Carlson and our friend Chris O'Brien, uh, who appeared on the, a special show on the mutilations that was on on Thursday night, by the way. Uh, anyway, the Oregon, uh, yeah, Tucker Carlson, yeah, Fox News. <sighs> Suddenly, mutila- <laughs> suddenly mutilations are like the hot topic yeah. again. But uh, reading these small town papers from Oregon, they're all about cults. Mm-hmm. That they're yeah. still stuck. They're still stuck on the Satanist cults, and that they're injecting the animals with all kinds of crazy drugs, and then drinking it during their rituals. And uh, and then the other side of that is uh, they're either for cults or for aliens from outer space. Right. Right. Including the sheriff and the vet and those kind of people. Oh, got to be aliens. What else could it be? It's not cults. Cults don't do this. It's like, what? Wait a minute. The sheriff is saying it's aliens. The locals are saying it's, you know, bloodthirsty Satanists. So, and the vet is scratching his head. I've never seen anything like this. This is just really weird. I don't have no idea what's doing this. This is really strange. So... They're in a in a satanic panic over there in Oregon, but so you've got the two different things, two different reactions out there uh, among the populace. So I'm not sure what that's doing, except from a trickster point of view, it's just kind of turning things upside down for a while and letting people contemplate that. Could there really be aliens? Oh, well, maybe there are actually, and they're doing this for their reasons. And they must have their reasons, and we probably should just stay out of their way. <laughs> <laughs> Which gets me back to back to the alien thing. It's like I can't entirely dismiss that as one of the theories. Like you, yeah, you, know, you can you can never completely x that out of the equation because somehow, yeah. some way, uh, an extraterrestrial force of some kind could be in the mix. Maybe not physically the way that we think that it might be. It could be some sort of giant quantum entanglement or something that uh, puts our consciousness in tune with their consciousness wherever they are. Uh, I mean, we're off in science fiction land here, yeah. and, you know, into some kind of wild scenario. But uh, I would say for a fact that the, the meme of the flying saucer 
Uh, one of the most prevalent memes right now, I, I use meme in the classic sense of, you know, that it was in, intended basically. It's like a, it's a, a bit of cultural information that gets transferred person to person. And uh, for very, people have different ideas about why, largely it's to maintain the cohesiveness of the group basically. That's why it started. That's why our brains increased so mightily, you know, a couple million years ago. And uh, Darwin couldn't figure out why that happened. And, and Wallace couldn't figure out what, why. We have brains bigger than needed, so much bigger than needed. And that's, some people think, to, so, so we, we could become a meme carrier. And that's how we were going to provoke and move ourselves forward by swapping these memes. But when the one we have now is the, the cow being sucked up in a beam of light into a flying saucer. Yeah. Uh, and you see it everywhere. I swear, once you start looking, you'll just start seeing it everywhere. And I have it's used a pair of set, earrings. It's just, it's just phenomenal. And Chris O'Brien actually made the point. It's like, well, do you realize what's really going on there? Is they're not necessarily being mutilated. They're being hoovered off the planet they're just being removed so i i bought this little thing that's a, a, a toy it's basically uh uh it's a lamp it's a flying saucer lamp that all lit up and it's got a plexiglass beam coming down with the cow being sucked up it's really really cute yeah yeah uh and it but it comes with a book a little booklet and in the booklet i say like well what are they going to say about that and it's, and it's a story, it's like a children's story saying, well, uh, the aliens are really nice people and they want to take these cows to their planet and where, where they'll have a happy home and be able to provide milk for their people and their families and their children. And the cows will love it and the aliens will love it. And well, we won't miss a few cows here and there. So good luck, cows. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, wow. Mars needs cows. <laughs> right, Mars needs cows, right. So I thought, I thought, well, that's really uh, uh, that's odd. Yeah, that's just <laughs> odd. Uh, but but the other side of that though is the fear factor, and you know I've been in the field enough and seen enough of these cases and to know that the ranch families are really freaked out a lot by this, and it's it's really you know changed their perspective on uh, on the world I think in a negative way. Yeah, uh, a lot of them that I dealt with, they were just like they were just, and they they're generally the more I don't know what you call religious type people. They think it's the work of the devil. It's a, some sort of demons at work, and they're really it's a stigma to them. And they're really embarrassed by it in the community. They want to bury the animal as fast as they can, and uh, so you get all these different responses that it brings out in people. But uh, it sure rattles their cage, no matter yeah. what. What what you uh, what lens you look at it through? It, it definitely turns things around in these communities. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, my grandfather's cows never got got mutilated, so I, I'm glad. It probably would have bothered him, but yeah. it, he wouldn't have gone with the whole demon thing. He was an atheist. He was a, a strong atheist, like super strong atheist. Yeah, He'd like drive my grandmother to church and and sit out in the truck and you know read a book or something, and uh, so he wouldn't have gotten that whole Satan thing. And he, 
probably well. wouldn't get the alien thing, but maybe because we did watch, you know, weird lights in the sky out at his farm a lot. So he yeah. might have. Um, but I don't know. He just had a very he scientific He would have got mind. mad, though. Like, great oh, granddad was not yeah. a calm person. <laughs> no, he was not. <laughs> no. He'd have been very angry at whatever was doing it. Like, there would have been sitting in the field with the shotgun, <laughs> like, night yeah. after night, I'm going right. to catch whoever's yeah, hurting would. my cows level. <laughs> a frustrated yeah. man. Uh, yeah, it's... I wish I could figure it out someday. I really do. <laughs> but, but I stick with the cattle mutilations because it gives me focus, basically. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, otherwise... You look at the realm of the paranormal that John Keel covered. I mean, it's everything from A to Z a hundred oh, yeah. times. And it's like you look at that, it's like, oh, oh, wow, wow, wow. How, you know, what am I going to go after here? It's like cryptids, uh, you know, any number of, uh, you know, poltergeist, hauntings, ghosts, I don't know. The entire realm, the spectrum, the super spectrum that uh, Keel talks about. But there's the mutilations are sitting there. It's, to me, it just seems like this is really the key. This is what's actually going to get us to the next step once we can grasp what's going on here. And if that points back to Gaia, so be it. And, and the bonus of this particular theory is like uh, it really does no harm, basically, with the Gaia thing. Because if it, at the very least, if it gets people thinking about Gaia as an organism... Uh, and gets people thinking more about the uh, nuts and bolts, so to speak, of, of Gaia theory, then you never look at a rock the same, basically, <laughs> or a tree or a plant or an ant or anything. Yeah. And so uh, so it, it gives this uh, a new meaning to uh, environmentalism, I suppose, if people get into the granular level of looking at how life really works on this planet. And then they start thinking, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be messing it up so bad and try to figure out something to do quickly to correct course. Yeah. Maybe and eat we can't fewer learn. cows. <laughs> yeah. So that would probably be a start. And Although, uh, you know, yeah. just looking yeah, at, at my local Kroger store here in Ohio, which is, you know, very red, very, very Ohio. It's very Ohio. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of vegetarian meat replacements in yeah. the grocery stores and lots and lots of dairy replacements like whole big long stretches of huh. oat milk almond milk and soy milk meat this, department that. has been shrinking gradually yes. over the last five years i've noticed that the meat department has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller really yep. yeah huh well. And and I thought that was really, really interesting. Now, mind you, there's still some crazy fundy guy who's saying that Cracker Barrel having uh, vegan sausage is a plot because he has this idea that there's a way that it can genetically change us and we won't oh, be yeah. fully oh. human. And, and then Jesus can't right. save us. Or oh, something. And I'm like, it. okay, <laughs> darn it, guy. If you're going to, like, start talking about genetics, please at least read enough to understand how it works. 
please. No. I, please, no. please, please, please. If there's sausage that can change me so Jesus can't recognize me, I please can I have some sausage? <laughs> you almost made me shoot water out my nose, child. Uh, because right. I have no beef with Jesus, but I definitely don't belong to Jesus, and I'm okay with that continuing. I have no beef with yeah. Jesus? Okay, all right. That was intentional, yes, was. I'm sure. <laughs> Well, it's it's uh, it's not a terribly efficient way of providing protein to nine billion no, people at this it's point. Not. No, are we gonna uh, we're gonna have to figure out something pretty quick uh, with our agriculture and uh, the environment and and so Gaia is in a way like a real nice stepping stone, I think, for people. It's like I keep telling my paranormal researcher friends, read the damn book, the first book. Gaia, a new look at life on Earth. It's a thin little book. Yeah. But uh, it will change your life. And uh, the way it did mine, I just have never been the same. I've seen things completely differently. Uh, And the more I get into it, it's like, wow, this is just really fascinating stuff. It's amazing. And then I I got the bright idea. Maybe it could be applied to the paranormal. Everybody's like, no, no, no. (laughs) You know, you, you can't go there with it. It's like, well, why not? We apply you know, everything else as a better explanation. <laughs> well, if you well, let's put it this way: it seems to be like the entire realm of the paranormal is drifting more and more toward consciousness-based so-called explanations. Mm-hmm. Yes. Of what's going on, uh, where the observer is part of the equation or the co-creation or whatever, you know, theories going on like that. Uh, so. How could you, uh, if you're talking about consciousness, primarily uh, or totally, perhaps, wouldn't you want to know like what was conscious around you and to what degree and uh, how that actually worked? And so, I'm saying that uh, everything we do is basically done in a guy and consciousness context. Mm-hmm. So how could you talk about consciousness at all? unless you somehow have factored Gaia into that. And whether you think it's sentient or self-aware or any of those terms that they, you know, that Lovelock tries to dismiss, there's something that's holding it together. And you, it's got to be some level of self-awareness, and that leads to prescient, and that leads to, you know, more Telepathy. refined level... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least uh, so it, it gives you those channels. Uh, the telepathy is uh, one of those channels that Gaia could work through so easily into our unconscious minds and our consciousness, basically. And there are all these uh, these channels that are right within reach as we speak, you know, that we, for the most part, neglect and yeah. ignore. I know the two of you don't. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, but we're weird. Yeah. You're weird. You're weird that way, and that's why I like you so much. Well, so, but you're you you're aware of those things, and you know how to tap into them to some degree, and you you know with your imagination and your creativity and uh, your own self awareness. So maybe that's uh, that's part of the overall equation that there, for every three people like us, there may be ten more, a hundred, or a thousand, or a million, or whatever that suddenly start having these realizations and start giving it a look. And, and so maybe that's what, you know, 
guy is trying to achieve here. It's like, we've got to kick this thing up a notch. You, you don't destroy your own home, for Pete's sakes. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's trying its best without hand-feeding us to get us to make those realizations on our own and come up with our own solutions. Maybe Goaded by Gaia or... Oh, that's a good title. Goaded by Gaia. <laughs> I like it's, that. I like that. It's, it sounds vaguely obscene, but we, we'll, we won't use that one. But, <laughs> you uh, know, <laughs> interestingly, cattle mutilations are part of why we started the podcast. Um, really? Because, yes, Morgana, jump I in there. Because randomly um, got, I ran into the Oregon cases in the news a couple years ago. Um, yeah. And then I got interested, and then mom got me stalking the herd, and then I read that. Yeah. And you're in the foreword, I believe. Oh, oh, I wrote that sucker. Yeah, she did. Um, and then I got a crazy idea about how, um, the nuclear fault, the fallout from the nuclear tests might be influencing where cattle mutilations pop up. And I still, then I went back to college and I didn't have time to do all of this, but I still need to get a big map and some push pins. Oh yeah. I've got that map up in Colorado still. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up actually. Uh, That was one of my early theories uh, as I mapped them all out and put with that big map that you see sometimes in uh, here and there, but it's still kicking around. But uh, uh, what it looked to me like, uh, and I wrote a 20 page white paper called Proximity Relationships uh, Mutes, Nukes, and uh, UFOs. And I'm going to read this. Thank you. Uh, show it. <laughs> uh, so. So you got that? Oh anyway, no, I'm going uh, to. I'm going to go well, get it. Well, 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 just to summarize it, uh, just looking at it, and where when the bombs went off, where the fallout went, I got all the charts from the government where the fall fallout fell in the United States. It was kind of like these bands of mm-hmm. fallout that would happen from the hundred one hundred above ground tests that we managed to pull off. And I thought, boy, this sure seems like they happen in those bands a lot. And then I looked more more closely. And it was started looking at the nuclear power plants, and this drew me to the Upper Midwest, and where where the uh, first uh, nuke plants were going online, and the mutilations were happening before and after they went online in the early seventies. And I went, boy, it really looks like somebody wanted a sample before the nukes fired up, and then shortly after they fired up. This was you know a pattern that held out quite a bit actually. Not just one or two, but several incidents. And places where they would test nuclear stuff, they would be completely ringed by uh, mutilations, like in Idaho and places like, well, the junkyard places that off the Nevada test site where they would dump a lot of the stuff. And it seemed like somebody was interested in that. And then the uh, Dulce itself was, you know, only 20 miles from Project Gas Buggy. Uh, directly uh, upwind from Dulce, uh, where they had a lot of the mutilations, famously, and theoretically an underground base and all that razzmatazz. Uh, so I thought, well, this is really quite an interesting pattern that I've looked at and discovered here, and it it seems like there's something to it. Uh, so then, uh, uh, 
Fukushima happened. And for oddly enough, see, one thing that was Chris and I always, uh, O'Brien and I always marvel at is why some areas don't have mutilations. And for instance, the west coast of the United States, everything upwind of the Nevada test site was virtually untouched during the big waves of the 70s. Everything hmm. was downwind, including the stuff in Canada, which I didn't realize so much of the fallout swirled up into the, up the Rockies into Canada into those western provinces of you know, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Alberta. They had the heavy mutilations up there. So it's like, well, they had, the, they had heavy fallout up there too. Nobody talks about that too much. So it's just uh, Fukushima happened. Chris O'Brien pointed out that suddenly the mutilations were more geared to the West Coast. This is when Fukushima is just battering the West Coast with still with radiation. Uh, but uh, what it left me with was thinking of the mutilations as a warning, basically. And I think, Barbara, you kind of touched on this earlier. It's like it's, it's almost like a Gaia is speaking to us in symbolic terms through a lot of these paranormal type phenomena. Uh, so I was thinking about NIDS, National Institute for Discovery Science with Robert Bigelow and, so, and company. Uh, anyway, they spent seven years studying the mutilations with the most high-powered scientist types you could, you could get. Millions of dollars. And then uh, their conclusion was, after seven years, Colin Kelleher wrote his little paper there and said something to the effect of, well, we are pretty much stumped on this one, but what it really does look like to us is that uh, somebody or something is issuing a warning to us about our food chain. And that involves the uh, uh, transmission of prion-type diseases uh, mad cow type Creutzfeldt, Jakob disease and whatnot uh, into the food chain and then being consumed by humans and giving us prion type diseases like Alzheimer's perhaps. Uh, and he wrote a book, Brain Trust, which uh, expands on that. But he wouldn't go, he wouldn't say anything about, you know, it being the government or aliens. He said, I don't know, <laughs> we don't know what it is, but it sure looks like somebody or something is really trying to give us a warning. And I thought that was quite significant. Seven years of the hard work of some real serious scientists. That is really yeah. important. That is significant. And I think they're right. As much as I can discern about it, because I don't... That's the thing about the paranormal and cattle mutilation and everything else is you don't know... <laughs> and so everything is, I think it's yeah. hypothetical or maybe, but I think that sounds right. And it, it, well, it, yeah, the, the weather, I ran across the material that is unvetted so far by me, but I, it sort of rings true. I do need to do a lot more work on it, but it's basically saying that the combination of the nuclear fallout uh, into the environment creates a situation in the cattle which uh, really favors the creation of those misfolded prions basically I can see that and, mm -hmm. so and then that's easily fairly easily transmittable to humans mm -hmm. and and Kelleher makes the case that all these 
right now the statistic is like one out of every seven humans in the United States will eventually be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. One out of seven. Mm-hmm. And, and one out of three will be diagnosed with uh, forms of dementia. So to me, one out of seven is a huge amount of people. To, that is. But he, he, Keller is basically saying in the past that we've just swept all this under the rug and said, oh, yeah, it was just dementia. There's just old age, blah, blah, blah. But it could, in fact, be quite specific to uh, our food chain. So yeah. the, the thing is, with all, any of that, it's like, who is paying attention? Yeah. Uh, who is paying attention to that? Uh, Kelleher writes this great book, actually, uh, Brain Trust, and it got very little notice. And, and, you know, my nuclear theories have gotten really very little notice. And people like Hastings, uh, Robert Hastings, in his UFOs and Nukes book, has gotten fairly little notice. Uh, the, the paranormal researcher types aren't exactly swarming to these ideas. It's like, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? We got to do something about this. It's just one of those things. If it's not, in, you know, impacting the larger society, then it's really not being very uh, warning, warning-ish. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. really not helping. Well, maybe it's impacting in ways that I don't realize. I, that's quite possible. I don't know. Or maybe some people are actually acting on it. They just don't want to tell us because they don't want to freak out the American public. I think there's a that's lot another, of that. that I, that's I, another problem. Yeah. I, I think that there there are researchers who know darn good and well that radiation is a problem um, in our food supply. And they don't want to talk about it because then somebody somewhere would have to deal with it. Um I'm not a terribly yeah, but, conspiratorial person, but I also know that, you know, people don't really want to deal with problems that just seem to be inescapable. Well, and there's not a lot we can do about the fact that we yeah. irradiated, like, big chunks of the country. Well, there's that. Like, there's not a lot well, we can maybe. do about it. <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, what you, this guy with his pulse laser. Okay, that's true. Pulse to... laser guy needs to put it on a really big lawnmower and just go mow the prairie. And just go with it. Right. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I don't know how this we works. Could do it from, we could do it from space. Yeah, if we, we could do, it from, do start... it from space, that would be cool. You know, we could borrow the Jewish space lasers. Yeah, get uh, Elon Musk on the case. Yep. Like, we really need to, like... Space laser all of these farmlands out here and get rid of this. Uh, I mean, it's we're entering this whole realm of like every day is going to be more like science fiction and less like anything that we could ever uh, have imagined was going to happen. Yeah. So we're one thing about the paranormal is it kind of prepares us for that. Yeah. <laughs> in that in that survival strategy thing that I was talking about. That uh, okay, we've seen weirdness. What do you got? <laughs> Yeah. I should never. Ne, don't ever say that. No, 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 no. That's that. That's tempting fate. No, I, we yeah. don't. Something's but, listening. It doesn't need to hear that. That's for sure. Right. No, I, I didn't say that actually. So, uh, but uh, that's one of the reasons I'm doing th- things like these podcasts. I'm just trying to get something rolling with people, and especially in the research community. It's like just stop and take a closer look at guy. For Pete's sakes, you don't have to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. But read that and tell me that you don't think Gaia has any sentient sense about what goes on on the planet. You don't think this is one gigantic self-regulating organism. 
And yeah. whether that's organized by God or whatever you want to say it's organized by, or it is God, uh, oh, fine. But meanwhile, just admit that it's one giant self-regulating organism that uh, works just exactly like love like describes it, basically. And whether consciousness enters into that or where it does, I don't know. Uh, I suspect that it does. How could it not? Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think so. But yeah, that's part of why we, we ended up doing this podcast, because Morgana noticed the the uptick in cattle mutilations, and I noticed an uptick in various other reports of various other things, uh, UFO reports started, you know, bouncing up in about 2019, 2017, of course, the Navy had released the video or accidentally released it right. or, you know, somebody stole it or however it happened. Um, and I, I, that's why we started the, the podcast because we were like, all this stuff yeah. seems to be happening at once more frequently. Like, are we in a, once. are we in what Keel called a flap year? Like what is going on? And well, it's uh, all a, it's all a flap year. At this that's point, what it, it seems feels like. like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you did uh, pick up on that and do something about it. Like try to you know what you've done, pre pre uh, put together a, a real a good uh, platform to get this material out to people who need it, <laughs> who want it, yeah. could use it. Let them ponder it for a while, maybe, you know, as long as it takes. Maybe it'll jog something somewhere. Yeah. The idea is to, is to get it out and get it part of the mix. And if anybody wants to, you know, argue about it, but people generally don't even argue with me about Gaia. they just like, oh, okay, whatever. You can't prove it, can you? Nope, can't prove it. <laughs> you can't prove any of this, though. I mean, right. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, none of this is provable. Uh, by yeah, any kind of real scientific method at all. Well, it, it reminds me of, I don't know, I keep having these flashbacks to some of these uh, events I went to when, a, year, a few years back when the local ranchers would get all up in arms. This is up in Colorado, and they asked me to come and talk to the group and explain what I thought was going on. And I would go with my little slide presentation and talk about Gaia and Carl Jung, and the ranchers are all sitting there like, who is this idiot? <laughs> and, and and then I would say, well, your your cows are actually probably being mutilated by materialized psychisms oh, and uh, and aggregate aggregates of topoidal energy. Oh boy! Like, oh, yeah. okay, get out of here! <laughs> yeah, that that that's not going to go over. That so I mean. Well, it's you know, not gonna, they're not going to grasp it that way. Although the, for the uh, people who who like the demon idea, it's the same damn thing. It's just a different name. Demons aren't physical; they're paraphysical, right? They they don't just walk yeah. down the street, and I mean, not generally. Um, <laughs> not so anymore. they are, so, yeah. So they're some kind uh, of paraphysical creature. So they're doing it. Or it's a psychoid. It doesn't really matter what you call it. it it's yeah, your right. explanation is basically the same as the the devil explanation. It could also be the same thing as the alien explanation if you take into account that maybe the aliens don't have bodies as we think of them. Right. 
I mean, you know. See. Well, that's where I, I, I sort of bear off from Keel's idea of the ultra-terrestrials uh, because I don't think he really actually ever grasped what the trickster was all about. And I don't think ballet did either, for that matter. Uh, I, I just, I mean, it's really weird that ballet never mentions the trickster. <laughs> uh, but what I'm proposing, after Hansen's book came out, The Parano Trickster and the Paranormal, I was very involved with that and wrote reviews and all kinds of stuff and was in touch with Hansen all the way through. Well, not all the way, but, you know, toward the end for sure. And writing the, his reviews for it. But uh, what uh, I don't think Hansen even really actually got the trickster in terms of it being a biological mechanism. It's a personified force of nature. And it gets personified by the culture that it's working in, basically. And if that's a crazy flying monkey or if that's an alien walking down the road or whatever the heck it is, according to our culture, uh, it's basically part of that, what I call that unrecognized force of nature, which is where Heineck actually ended up. Uh, I ran all this by him in 1980. He never said a word, whether he agreed with me or not. This is when I was talking evolutionary imperative theory, right? And collective unconscious effects, et cetera. But, uh, you know, later it came out in correspondence with Jerry Clark where Heineck had ended up saying it's elementals. I think UFOs are elementals, which are nature spirits, yeah. right? Yeah. But back to tricksters. Uh, I don't think any of those people, I ran it by Hanson. He said, you know, by trying to put the, make the trickster into a force of nature as such, you're actually demystifying the world and disenchanting the world and no. taking enchantment out of the world and i said no actually not i'm putting more into it by doing this i think yeah, that, so, well that's re that's reductionism that's scientism you're trying to break things down to their their parts and the, it just doesn't work you know but, you're, you're ta okay. taking magic <laughs> taking magic out of the world okay so that's where we ended up uh, no <laughs> <laughs> oh boy i would have gotten in such a fight with that <laughs> No, sir, yes, that's not how enchantment works. <laughs> Trust me, I'm a pagan. Well, I know these things. I felt, I, I, I felt kind of guilty there for a while, but not too long. <laughs> it's like, gee, uh, gee really, I, maybe I've, I've removed magic from the world. Oh, my God. No. It's like, no, you haven't removed anything from the world. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, anyway, I disagreed about that, and I... I think it maybe it does smack of reductionism to say, oh, this is a you know personified force of nature that takes the face of this trickster, which is an archetype in our collective unconscious. I'm fairly certain of that, and so is Jung. But whether it transfers on into a Gaian realm, I think it does. I think it serves the same purpose, basically, which is to create novelty and the trickster. The trickster is good and evil both, or, or good and bad. I don't even know if evil applies here. But <clears throat> the trickster makes a mess and kills things and does all kinds of crazy bad stuff. On the other hand, it provides novelty and, and inventions like the fish hook and things that are helpful to people. And uh, plus reinvigorating their societies and uh, creating a more robust population. Uh, so the trickster is amoral, and people never do get this point. They say, oh, no. I, at one point I said Trump was 
kind of a trickster figure in some ways because he was amoral. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's in, comes into the situation and just turns everything upside down. And boy, did I take a bunch of grief about that online. They said, he's obviously immoral. He's not amoral. And it's like, well, you don't know the difference between amoral and immoral. You know, immoral, yeah, I can. you can talk about evil then, I suppose. But amoral is just no morals whatsoever. Good, bad, they, they don't recognize any of that. Yeah. The, the truly amoral trickster is actually... Yeah. Is not a demon, as 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 Keel portrays it. It, I think it's it's a force of nature that'll take on any form that's appropriate at the time for its purpose, whether that's a small group of people or the whole planet itself. It's it's going to do what it has to do to do, create that uh, reinvigoration process. So Keel, you know, likes to brag or say that he was a demonologist at heart. And the, the tricksters really did do some rotten things, you know. Oh, yeah. They, uh, uh, they really did some rotten things. Uh, but uh, I just don't think that that's a fair assessment of what the trickster's real role is in, as a force of nature, personified force of nature. And that includes aliens, UFOs, cryptids, cattle mutilators, whatever. It's uh, still a force of nature, which can... Theoretically, if alter the molecular structure of anything that it wants in its purview. I mean, then we're getting into surreal science fiction, you know. <laughs> yeah, of That's course, my ta- brain goes, well, how does it do that? And, you know, well, yeah. We don't know. Oh, ba- <laughs> yeah. No, we're back I've, at I don't I, know. <laughs> I asked, uh, well, this fellow, I don't know if you're familiar with Tom Bearden, the Excalibur briefing, a guy that was a few years back, and he ta- had a theory of the. Uh, pretty much the, that the mutilations were tolpoidal. Yeah. The manifestations of, uh, of our fear, basically. And in, in, in uh, the instance of the mutilations, it was our fear of the Russians and that they were going to come and take our milk, milk from our mother's milk of our American continent or whatever, something or other, veered off into craziness. <laughs> but he was, also, he was also a Tesla genius, and uh, he was trying to convince me that uh, that the molecular structure of any matter can be altered through this process. So, in other words, I kept saying, "What's the agent that does this to the cow?" He says, "There is no agent; what, it just happens instantaneously." What was it? I had a friend. Um, he's very strange, um, and and he ended up being kind of crazy. But you know. I mean, I do hang out with kind of odd people. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, now you tell me. Yeah, I know. You would never have spoken to me otherwise. Um, right. But he had this this idea that, and it's something having to do with Tesla coils, whereby you could power an electromagnet so to make it so that make the magnetism so strong that it could pull blood out of a, an animal's skin it, without a, a hole, without damaging it, that, that, that the iron yeah. would be pulled through. Is that what that guy was talking about? Well, that doesn't sound that crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, you know, this dude would say all kinds of strange stuff. So, you know, yeah, I never I, knew when he was, like, halfway sensible or not. Right. 
you know, he was he, yeah, well, he wanted to try the 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 god helmet thing, you know, with the oh. e- electromagnetic thing and at one point I was dumb enough to say, "Oh, well, if you ever build it, I'll try it." And you know, he never built it thankfully, and so my brain still oh, works. Well. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what we're going to do in the future, how we're going to mesh with this technology and uh, you know, I'm really uh I don't know, paleo <laughs> when it comes to the technology. Uh, I spent uh, like 23 years up on top of a mountain in Colorado uh, with no running water or electricity. So, you know, I stared out at 14,000 foot mountain peaks for 23 years, actually, it was. And uh, so I didn't get uh geared into the tech revolution until fairly late in life so i'm i'm really pl- playing catch up but now i see its value and now i feel like i can i can deal with it but that wasn't what i was doing at that point i was you know building a house and living a life on a so-called commune and writing music and playing music and doing a lot of reading a lot of reading it's Nothing like, wrong uh, with any of that. That sounds like a wonderful life. You know, had goats and chickens and uh, gardens and uh, really a simple pastoral Walden Pond kind of life, uh, which was fantastic. You know, voluntary poverty has its place. But uh, it I don't know where, who I would be if I hadn't had done that, really, to have that kind of perspective because you get to see the seasons roll by in every variety that you can imagine of weather and you're 9,000 feet is where, where that house is. So you're in the clouds all the time. It's virtually, <coughs> excuse me. So that, uh, was a big, big part of my perspective, how, you know, forming my perspective on any of this. So I recommend everybody go sit on a mountain for at least 20 years and then come back and talk to me. About it. <laughs> I think that's great advice. <laughs> Right. I've sat on a mountain. It's the stars are really short here in the Appalachians. So, oh, the stars out there are just oh, it's just unbelievable. Uh, even now, I drive up there to get out of the car late at night. Moon's not up yet, and I just step out like on a January night and look up. It's like I can't believe this. <laughs> this is, like, you know, that you can actually see this with the naked eye. The Milky Way just wrapping around you up there, just millions and millions of stars you can see. And it's declared one of the darkest places on the continent right now, actually. Yeah. And so it was really, really great for that aspect of it. But, uh, and I saw a lot of funny things flying around, but I, I wouldn't know what exactly they were. Uh, I never will know, probably. Yeah. No, uh, none of us you, likely will. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but they certainly were strange and uh, unidentified to me, at least. But yeah. uh, I, have, I have no great, uh, you know, paranormal personal stories really uh you know it's just kind of a typical kind of uh scholar type life and it's like except for the mutilations <laughs> <laughs> that one little thing just, just, yeah. that, just that one little thing just kind of tripped me up oh my goodness. Uh, but anyway a long strange trip it's been and uh we probably ought to retire yeah, while, we're, while we're ahead here but yeah. uh I don't want to keep you up, Barbara. I think you've got to rest and I should. try to get your, get your 
it's, we can go on and we, we can continue this another time. Yeah, we'll you come can back always come back. Fully, yeah, that's, fully loaded yeah. with the next the next round. Yeah. But uh, I think we, we did cover a lot of ground. I think it seemed so. like, geez. Sounded like it. It was a yes, lot of fun. It, it was lovely yeah, it was. to meet you, you like formally, yeah, was, finally. Be, I hear about you. Very nice to meet <laughs> Yeah. Very nice to meet you both. And I, I've been keeping up with Barbara and her wonderful artwork all this time online. And you're quite an amazing painter. She Thank really you. is. Really, you're really thank good. Thank you. Jeez. You're awesome. World class. Well, thank you. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good. Uh, that's one of the things that's nice about something like Facebook is I you know, get to meet people like you folks. And, and there are a bunch of them out there, all kinds of interesting people and doing interesting things. And it, it enriches me. It really does. I think everybody's and, enriched by it. That's the good part of Facebook. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I haven't gone, ah, Facebook, ah, it's evil, you know, and left. Because yeah, there's no, good parts to it. There's been, been many good parts. So we'll, we'll resume this. Uh, maybe I'll have the answer next time I come back around. <laughs> okay. And, uh, I'll just we'll scroll just it out for you for a little bit and say, yeah. oh, "Okay, what's what's next?" <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll figure it out. But anyways, hang in there, everybody. Stay healthy, be healthy. You do. You Safe too. journey to you, and I uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. All right, thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for right. coming. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. (laughs) 